Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Helper and I'm joined by, and this week I'm joined by Matt Tight. Just this week? I'm just kidding. Oh, I see. Okay. That's right. awkward. Awkward. Awkward, Ox. All right. You know what? You do it to me now and be like, and for and for the first for the first and last time ever. And introduce it. Balance it out. Hi, I'm Matt Taibbi, and welcome to Useful Idiots. And I'm joined this week by Katie Halper. And um, I'm Katie Halper, and you may know me for discovering Matt Taibbi back in the day when he was just a little basketball player in Mongolia. And I said, "This guy has the chops to write." Right. Right. That's exactly how it happened. Yeah. Yep. I was uh, uh, very young, but very precocious. Right. Right. When did you write your first article? Probably in 1988. So I was a seven-year-old scout. <laughs> right. You you saw right away the potential in that town meeting or whatever it was that I covered right. in covered, New yeah. Bedford, Massachusetts. Or some, yeah, some, some silly thing like that. So, yeah. So here we are years later after that uh important crosswords moment in in both of our careers and um decades later and uh and we're in the middle of the spring slash summer of 2021 and all kinds of stuff is happening Uh, i think we can go full-fledged i i appreciate your caution i've always appreciated that about you your restraint but i think we can say it's summer so katie before we get to any of the other stuff we just got to get this out of the way. What's your What's your take on the NBA final? Who's going to win? Let's, let's, I mean, just, let's just start yeah, with the basic let's just prediction. Start with the basics. Who's going to win? I mean, if I'm choosing between the Phoenix, yeah, between the Phoenix Surprise and and the Milwaukee Elk. Yeah, if I'm choosing between the Phoenix Surprise and the Milwaukee Milwaukee Elk, I call them the Milwaukees. Mm-hmm, uh, the Milwaukee's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm gonna go with the surprise. Yeah. Because it's a surprise, it's right? A surprise. Right. I mean, right. that's always. I mean, also the skill that they bring to the game. They are so good at. They they never travel. Right. Yes. Which is so important. Or at least infrequently enough that they can they can they score. They travel the right? games, right? But they don't do that thing you can't do on the court. Right, which, which is, is when taking you, when how you, many steps? Three. That's three is too many. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> One, two. <laughs> well, yeah, it's basically two steps. Yeah, two steps. Yeah. yeah, right, right. I give them. I mean, I'm untradition. I'm a non-traditional basketball student. Mm-hmm. Um, I started late in life, and also my rules are untraditional. So, right. um, much like actually, we're going to get to later in the show. Robin D'Angelo was a non-traditional student. Uh, cause she went to school later, but to be I'm fair, the N- NBA players have their own interpretation of traveling rules too. So, uh, well, I mean, that's what I was about to get to before mm-hmm. you rudely interrupted and mansplained to me something Sorry. I totally understand yes. and actually have put a lot of thought into the very rich history of discourse around what is with tra- wither wither travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that there's a whole rich exchange about what does traveling mean who right travel right how far how do you think phoenix should approach covering Giannis? do you think they should double him or or sag off him double sag (laughs) no what's your strategy seriously for that kind of player with those unique physical attributes what what 
What's the, what's Giannis, the right? Giannis. Giannis. Yeah. Giannis. Well, Giannis, of course, he's Greek. He is Greek. Yes. Wow. Which he comes from a long line of. I think actually he should be thrown out of the league because they have an upper uh, an upper leg. No, what's the expression? A leg up. They have a upper an hand. Upper like hand. A, or, yeah, he is an right, upper exactly. leg. I like that. He has a leg. Wait, he has a wait. The upper hand, the leg up. Yeah, he has a hand up, or the upper leg on uh, this because he comes from a very like they started the Olympics, Matt, the mm. Greeks. So I kind of find it a little bit troubling that it's almost like steroids. Like you're not allowed to do steroids if you're an athlete, and I think that you shouldn't you, allow, be allowed to be Greek either. Yeah. Or at least there needs to be some kind of maybe you have to share some tips from your people and your culture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You have a little cultural sharing before yeah. the before yeah. the game starts. Right. So he, as a Greek, you asked about. I mean, you didn't ask as a Greek, but you did ask me about how you deal with someone with his features. Right. That's how you put it. Right. His unique physical attributes. His unique physical attributes. Yeah. So I look having a unibrow. This is makes it very hard for you to be able to see what's He's happening. Not that kind of Greek, actually. Well, oh, what kind of Greek is he? Well, one without a unibrow. Oh, he's a he's a duo. He's a duo brow. I got to see a photo of him. See how is he a self-loathing Greek who gets rid of his unibrow? I, I wouldn't say that he's self-loathing. I think he's pretty pretty psyched to be whoever he is. Right. Actually. Well, besides the you, you know what? I actually am working on a piece a straight to camera video explainer about the unibrow. So I'm going to table that. Why don't you ask me because he has so many unique features. Why don't you throw a feature at me or else we'll be here all day. Cause I know him and his body you know, his features so well. So. Well, he's seven feet tall and has the skills of a guard. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Let's put it that way. So he's not a traditional big man, but he's got traditional big man size, big man, energy, big guard yes. energy. Yeah. Right. So what what makes it complicated is that when you are seven feet, but a guard, you are at a crossroads. You don't know yourself well, because you're made to be it's like God, the gods want the gods Mount Olympus. They wanted you to be a not a guard, but rather a forward or a center. Yeah, or a center. Really, at the end of the day, it comes. I mean, there's a whole debate about that. I don't know if you are aware of that about position debate. fluidity, like, yeah, dude. exactly. PF, we call it. So um, there's a whole debate. And I think that what you do is you just you put an what Scotty Pip is Scotty Pippen still with us? Uh, not playing. Yeah, but, but with us. Mm -hmm. He's short, right? Not really. No. Was he something or did I just think that because his name sounds short? Who, no, was he, was, he was about six, seven, maybe. Is Mookie yeah. Wilson a basketball player? No, he's a he's a baseball player. Okay, who is a small basketball player? You're thinking of probably Mookie uh, Blaylock or Muggsy Bogues, maybe. Muggsy Bogues. Muggsy Bogues. Muggsy Bogues. Yeah. So you take a Muggsy, you put him on top of Giannis, mm -hmm. and now you have a normal size, normal heighted guard. Right. Yes. Or no, actually, you'd have you'd have somebody who's almost twelve feet tall at that point. <laughs> I think actually it goes the other way. Right. Okay. Yeah. A little. Anyway, you think Phoenix is going to win? The surprise. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I'm going to go with Phoenix too. 
yeah. among other things because they won the first game before this discussion happened i mean so. last night i mean this uh, whatever monday tuesday night was incredible right it was incredible i yeah. i thought it was like, so amazing you didn't even uh, i couldn't even watch I, I, yeah. I forgot it that's how it was like i i have it's like a repressed memory that's how amazing it was how long do you think the seasons the the the, the series will go how many games like 12. <laughs> it's the first to four wins so <laughs> yeah but i mean there's gonna i i have i what i think is gonna happen there's gonna be a lot of ties right okay Matt, we live in a this is a post-covid world right we don't know how things are gonna turn out right so right. what's your prediction 12. uh i'm gonna go with uh phoenix and six i just thought i thought you just said four phoenix has to win four games but it could take as many as seven to get there oh it couldn't take 12. It couldn't take 12. What, remind me why not? By the seventh game, somebody will have won right. four okay. games. I was just making sure that you were, Matt, yeah, yeah, you were, you know, yeah. you're you're getting older. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm getting That's, older too. Mm -hmm. Landslide. Well, I wasn't going to say anything. But, I predict know. a landslide. So Katie says Phoenix surprise in 12. I say Phoenix in six. It's such a sign of sexism that I'm not asked more about this on the different appearances that I do. Look, you know, they could be people could be learning from you constantly about this stuff, and they're just not availing themselves of that opportunity. Yeah, they're depriving themselves. So do we have anything else we need to take care of before we get to the food groups here quick? Let's see. I mean, we have some good news coming from the White House, which is that they are giving um, temporary status to uh, Yemeni people. Uh, Biden admin extends temporary protected status for Yemenis. Uh, reading at Democracy Now! In immigration news, the Biden administration has extended temporary protected status or TPS to Yemeni nationals already in the U.S., citing the ongoing conflict and humanitarian crisis in their home country, where the U.N. estimates some 20 million people, many of them children, now rely on aid. TPS will be extended for roughly 1,700 Yemenis through early March 2023. The current term was set to expire in September. I want to bring that up because we like to talk about the useful idiots bump, and I think we all know why this happened because we wanted to hire a sh short I, yemeni people short chubby yemeni kid yeah but right. be i mean like look obviously that doesn't change anything it's we wrote we raised awareness about right. this and like biden the admin the administration knew that they couldn't it was a big enough story our demand for a yemeni co-host along with bashir assad those were big enough in the media, like atmosphere and the media culture. Such it was story. in the ether. So they, the ether, they that, right, right. It was in the ether. And so Biden just knew, I think that they knew that they, you know, this is how we, we push them. They, left. they realized that we had the upper leg in this. Discussion. We had the upper leg. Yeah. And they yeah. had the chubby middle teeth. Yeah. Teeth, mm -hmm. chubby teeth. Well, the toothy chubby, <laughs> the whole point was that you didn't want a, a chubby Yemeni kid who would right. bite. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. I've never seen chubby teeth, though. That sounds like a spoken word. Anyway, you're welcome to the fewer than 2000. That's kind of a low number. It is kind of a low number. And you know what? It's indicative of the kind of sort of overall not terribly impressiveness uh, of the Biden White House, because right. they had another story this week that kind of ties in with that. That was we might as well just get to it. This is the yeah, Democrats. They send 80 vials somewhere. He didn't tell them to go back, though. This is huge. Remember, he did tell Haitians to go back. Um, 
Kamala told Guatemalans to go back. Do not right, or come. Or don't come. Do not come. Right. Sorry. That's what, what it was. Do not come. So this is pretty radical for them. Okay. Right. Anyway. So anyway, there was a story that came out this week. This is Democrats suck, four foot groups. This is Joe Biden at a debate uh, last, last year. Uh, and this is what he said when asked about the Saudi regime and how he would respond differently than Donald Trump would in the wake of the death of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Mr. Vice President, the CIA has concluded that the leader of Saudi Arabia directed the murder of U.S.-based journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The State Department also says the Saudi government is responsible for executing nonviolent offenders and for torture. President Trump has not punished senior Saudi leaders. Would you? Yes. And I said it at the time. Khashoggi was, in fact, murdered and dismembered. And I believe in the order of the crown prince. And I would make it very clear, we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. We're going to make them pay. We're going to make them the pariah that they are. Uh, And Khashoggi was um, murdered and dismembered in that order. If you dismembered somebody and then murdered them, that would be confusing. So, okay, so he's gonna he's gonna shun them. He's gonna make them the pariahs they are. All that he stuff. Said, he said, I believe he said in the order, right? But he meant on the order. Yeah, on the order. I'm kidding. Right. I'm making a joke. No, 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 I know you are. But it was funny because when I heard it too, he goes, I believe on the order of the crown prince. I thought he was saying, I believe in the order. Like it sounded like he was saying like he believes in their kingdom or something. And I believe in the order of the crown prince. So, okay, so he said all that stuff you know, with this typical, I'm a tough guy thing. And then this week we get this story. Okay, headline, White House quietly hosts brother of Mohammed bin Salman. Top U.S. officials hosted the brother of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman Tuesday. The Biden administration had not publicly announced the visit by Deputy Defense Minister uh, Prince Khalid bin Salman amid ongoing pressure to reevaluate the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. An intelligence report released in February found that Mohammed bin Salman directly approved the the assassination of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters uh, Tuesday the U.S. was reaffirming its commitment to the nation's, quote, longstanding partnership and Saudi defense. Just quickly about that, you know, in the in the debate, you know, the question was the, the CIA concluded this, and then we have an intelligence intelligence report that conclude concludes that Bin Salman was, you know, approved the assassination. I actually don't disbelieve that in this case, but is that a thing now that we just have to live with that now the intelligence agencies are just gonna tell us what happened and that's gonna become journalistic fact right. from now on? Yep. Right. It's funny. I mean, I almost feel like the way we should believe it. I, I hear what you're saying. And we've, we've discussed this on the show that like probably journalists should not be the stenographers of the intelligence community. Um, but it is funny in this case because it's it's not in their best interest. Right. So that's why I kind of believe it. Like like right. the administration has no skin in the game in this case. So I'm going to think that it probably is true. Right. Yeah. Uh but that's incident. That's kind of doesn't really speak to the the larger practice. I mean, how much how much has that shifted, Matt? Like, as someone who's been, uh, you know, you were around wearing the fedora and right, yeah, you know. back, back in the old black and white yeah. days. Yeah. yeah. Like, but um, how has that shifted? I mean, uh, in terms of how much the press, the media, actually just says uncritically repeats what the intelligence. 
I don't know. You know what? I mean, they've, they've successfully blotted out my. I mean, I think I think we you know when it was anything controversial, there was at least some perfunctory digging that would be done. You know, if they told us something like, "Yeah, Saddam, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction," they would at least pretend to try to confirm it. I think did they it, with that? They did. Yeah, they went through the motions. You know, they 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 accepted all kinds of terrible evidence for it. But they they went through the motions. They, you know, there were there were stories. The New York Times did all those stories about suggested that uh, Muhammad Atta had met with Iraqis in Prague. That turned out to be not true. But you know, there were they were trying to make the links at least that there was a reason why we were going in. But now now it just it feels like it's a commonplace feature of foreign policy stories. The CIA says this, or the NSA says that, and right. therefore. It's a fact. There we go. It's yeah. Three dots, you know. Right. Uh, anyway, but it's that was fun, yeah. in this case, it's just ridiculous because, you know, it's just another example of the Biden administration just not being what they claim to be. And, and also, again, not to belabor this point, but can you imagine if this was Trump? Oh, yeah. And he, and he had and he had this dude in the White House quietly like we'd never hear anything else. You know, they, it would. They would talk about how he he had the blood of journalists on his hands yeah. and all that stuff. Right. And so. you know what? This is I I'm I'm with Trump on this one because he owned it. Remember, they asked him if he was going to do anything about it. He said no. Right. Because they had they, bought a bunch of weapons. Yeah, and the the relationship us. is more important and all that yeah. stuff. That's the thing about Trump is that is there's this awkward thing with him, and we talked about this last week with Austin Smith, where it's just. You can't tell whether the things that are like some of the people in the media are objecting to are the fact that he's saying terrible things or that he's just taking the mask off. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't recognize that he's supposed to lie about it. Right. So he just says stuff. Um, I think he recognizes he's supposed to lie about sometimes. it. Sometimes. I think he just recognizes that he won the presidency in large part by not lying about it. I mean, he's a he lies about a lot. But I think he he strategically or maybe not strategically, but he's also can just he just doesn't give a fuck about certain things. Yeah. Like, I don't think he I don't think I don't think he knows the difference between torture and enhanced interrogation. Now, there isn't one. Right. Right. But he I think from from Trump's point of view, if you if you asked him, why didn't one torture? Is why you torture? Know, yeah, of course. But well, why did why didn't you say enhanced interrogation? He, right. he, he would like look back at you and draw a blank. Like, what do you mean? Right. I did. I said torture, you know, Yeah. like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And he would just double down, right? Like these are bad guys. Right. These are bad, we should very be bad torturing guys. them more. Yeah. We should be torturing them more. Yeah. Right. That's why it's like, I mean, in the case of, of the, we're not going to do anything because they buy a lot of weapons from us. That's the, that's one of the examples of the, who said it, uh, Trump or Chomsky, where right. they're just saying, they're revealing a reality about us foreign policy. It's just that one of them is saying it in a way that is condemning it. And one of them is saying it in a neutral to, to celebratory way. Right. Like he's, I'm not sure which I prefer. The one that isn't like, just isn't embarrassed by the fact that we're ignoring human rights considerations in right. favor of the strategic, the supposed alleged, strategic. Yeah, yeah, right. The strategic considerations um, or the one that pretends to have, human rights considerations and then quietly meets with these people. I, I mean, I, I got to say, like, OK, I think you can e easily argue that the net. I don't know, though. I mean, as of as of now, yes, the net death and destruction and human rights 
abuses, I think, under Biden. Would we say that they were lower? I think it's too early to tell. It's isn't too it? early to tell, right? So I, I think that you could let's let's say they are lower though, right? I still think that you that so so if they're lo lower, you could say it's the net positive, but there's something dangerous. Why did I just say it like that? I don't know. Something dangerous. Trying to be dramatic. Yeah, but there's something dangerous. There's something refreshing about this. Sounds like a cliched point, but there is something dangerous about Biden covering it up because then you're not on the we're not as vigilant, right? We're back to brunching. Uh, lots of people think that, for instance, we're no longer supporting the Saudis in, in Yemen, but we are. We're just doing it in a defensive way. And of course, the word defensive is even more meaningless than it was before this second round of bombing uh, yeah, we're, do, we're doing it in the context of having said that we're going to reevaluate doing it yeah and also we said that like the air the strikes that we ordered against iraq and syria like two weeks ago that nobody's talking about that was allegedly in self-defense mm -hmm. so again like so they it's are, always we are in now it's always in self-defense so we're now supporting saudi arabia's defensive war <laughs> you know poor right. saudi arabia defending themselves against yemen we were joking, but they're literally defending themselves against the the Yemeni kids who are biting them. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. In the upper leg. Yeah. Yeah. Or lower on the knee. Or in the knee, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, that happened. Democrats suck. What do we have for Republicans suck? So for Republicans suck, we have an interesting um flip flop with a friend of the show. Just kidding. I don't but we've we I don't even think we've mentioned him. The author of Hillbilly Elegy, JD Vance. Have you have you read him? No, I haven't. I never read okay, the anyway. book. So he has uh, he's running for office and he is a Senate candidate. And now he has to embarrassingly apologize. This is such a funny move. He's apologizing for anti-Trump tweets. Mm. He has come forward now. I guess there were tweets of his. This uh, is awesome. So now this is happening on both sides. This is great. Yeah, I, know, I yeah. love it. So uh, reading at the the Guardian, uh, the hillbilly elegy author turned Republican Senate candidate J.D. Vance has apologized for a former political position, critic of Donald Trump. Like a lot of people, I criticized Trump back in 2016, uh, Vance told Fox News on Monday, and I asked folks not to judge me based on what I said in 2016, because I've been very open that I did say those critical things and I regret them and I regret being wrong about the guy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Have uh, some backbone. What's I know, wrong with have you? some decency. Well, not even decency. Backbone, at least. Backbone, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I, I don't actually think this guy is particularly uh, decent. But but he had had. But yeah, you could you could just own it. Be Trumpier about it. You know, that's the way he could be. If he wants to appeal to Trump voters, ironically, yeah. he could be Trumpier and just double down on it. Yeah, I didn't say Maybe. that stuff. I didn't say that stuff. Or so what if I said that stuff? Yeah, he wasn't aggressive enough. He was a coward. Yeah. Those, those um, weren't, those, that wasn't what I meant. Those were just words that I was saying. Yeah, he should pretend he was being, it was a parody. That was my favorite um, Trump thing ever. This is such a, like, a negative tendency on the sort of blue side of the aisle. This, oh my God, I said something that was once, you know, slightly politically incorrect or whatever it is. Right. And now, now I'm going to throw myself in the mercy of everybody and apologize uh, for what I said, which incidentally won't work. And so you'll have thrown away your dignity and gone against your uh, original beliefs or whatever it was in vain. Uh, it, it, and the Republicans heavily criticized this whole thing for years, right? Like this, because they see that as cancel culture and right. mob rule and all that. 
now they're so now they're going to do it that's, i mean you got to do it weak. because you got to pay you got to pay homage to donald trump by doing that's something ridiculous. that donald trump yeah makes fun of but you know <laughs> it's uh it's it's kind of funny uh one of the things that he said to a journalist about uh about trump is the reason ultimately that I'm not a Trump voter is because I think that Trump is the most raw expression of a massive finger pointed at other people, which is just a kind of great phrase. Raw a expression of a massive finger pointed at other people. What do we call that? A mixed metaphor? Kind of Seamus Heaney style? Yeah, like a, a raw raw expression of a massive finger. So he's saying pointing at other people. So he's based, I mean, what he's saying content wise is that Trump it scapegoats people, mm -hmm. but the raw, a raw expression of a massive finger. Yeah. That doesn't feel like it really flows all that well. Yeah. Like he probably means something else. He's a poet. So this is going to be, so I, I actually, I'm kind of looking forward to, well, I guess maybe I should look forward to it. What Republican cancel culture will look like. Right. I mean, they've already started it. I mean, the as much as I'm not uh, a fan of CRT and all that stuff, the these anti-CRT laws and everything are it's everything they say that they're they're against. But, yeah, of course, right? Critical yeah. race theory for the. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's gross. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Just have a backbone, as you said. Have a backbone. Right. H A B. As uh, as your favorite sports sportscaster, Jim Rome. Uh, used to say, have a take and don't suck. Yeah, have a take and don't suck. Right. right. Exactly. So what do we have for, isn't that weird? You got this. Yes, I do. This is, it's mainly just a picture with a headline. Uh, it's from the Washington Post. This weight loss device locks your jaw nearly shut. Experts say that's dangerous and barbaric. I love the low techness of this. You know, like we live in this age when you have pharmaceuticals that can fix right. basically any problem like at the neurological level instead they're just basically clamping your mouth shut to deal with eating it's, yeah it's very old school the story goes like this researchers in new zealand and the united kingdom said they were fighting the obesity epidemic by locking people's jaws two millimeters from shut via a magnetic contraption installed in the mouth the goal is to restrict wearers to a liquid only diet the device has an emergency key to unlock it, just in case users have a panic, uh, have a panic attack or choke. It's a non-invasive, reversible, economical, and attractive alternative to surgical procedures, the study's lead researcher said in a news release Monday. The fact is there are no adverse consequences with this device. Uh, experts who study nutrition and eating disorders disagree. Uh, Dan Jade, Found, founder and principal of the UK's National Center for Eating Disorders, said the device is like, quote, a return to the dark ages. This is very, very dangerous. Any extreme weight loss device, any of these strategies run the risk of harm unless you're working with someone who is fully trained uh, to deal with all these issues that can arise from it, uh, blah, blah, blah. It's Other people are saying it's barbaric, incredibly concerning. First of all, what do you, what do you think of this? Well, I like it because it has a kind of like uh, a grill look to it, you know, like the silver thing on the teeth. Oh, like the, so the it's lock. like, right. It can look, it can be like a fashion accessory. Too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They call it, the researchers call it, by the way, the wor world first weight loss device. I don't know what that means. World first. 
does that mean like premiere or something good about it? It just there's something weird and ESL-ish about it. But what if you lose the key and you're choking? Yeah, I, I think if you're choking and you got this thing on, even if you have a key, it's it, it, it's not going to go fast enough. I mean, I'm torn. There's something appealing about not having to make any decisions. I just want this model in my house somewhere. I just want it as at least as a display of art. It's like a chastity belt for your mouth. Right. I bet if I put this on the floor, my it would confuse my dog to the point of like she'd back up from that. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So right. it's scary enough to scare off a dog, is what you're saying. Yeah. Don't you think? I don't it, know. My Bodhi like has a alive. real Na Napoleon complex to her. So she may mm. go after it right. with the ferocity that is very self-destructive. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I think most animals would pick up that this is a see, Bodhi's such a martyr. That she may think it's she may think she want she may want to protect us from it and attack it. She's so, not a coward like Coco. Right. Yeah, my dog's a coward. So yeah, it's funny. I actually I looked for the original story about this, but there's a there's a line in this Washington Post thing about how the the goal of this thing is to get people to lose weight by restricting people to a liquid diet. Right. There actually was a football player, quite a famous guy named Nate Newton, who played for the uh, Dallas Cowboys large man dude just loved to eat he was a lineman he got up over 400 pounds after he retired um had a few weed issues too there were a few oh, the munchies. With, yeah like you know he was transporting trash bags full of weed like but, you know people need hobbies That's after good they... exercise i would think but not yeah. heavy enough not transporting yeah. them fast enough or frequently enough so i can't find the story but i know that I, i'm i'm gonna like stake my career on on the on the fact that I'm not misremembering this. He once talked about this idea that he had to lose weight where he was going to wire his mouth shut. He was ready to do it, except that he realized that if he did that, all he would end up doing was liquefying French fries and getting around and, and like beating his own system. Right. Well, that's interesting because I have a family friend who I don't remember why she had to wire her jaw shut. She had, I think she broke her jaw. It was not to lose weight. And she has like five kids. She, her kids are now adult, but this is when they were kids younger and she was feeding them and stuff. And all she would do is she would take whatever she cooked for them, like hamburgers, fries, you know, spaghetti and meatballs. She would serve them and make then she shake. would put her, make it a shake for herself and, and sip it through a straw. And she said she did indeed lose a lot of weight. Cause I guess you get, more full you get fuller on liquid and maybe it tastes disgusting to be to be uh drinking a hamburger or spaghetti meatballs i don't right. think i would do that with fries though like see it's different dude, when you're doing that really because you fries. choose yeah but isn't part of the the beauty of fries that you enjoy like the texture and chomping on them i can't imagine liquid fries i i think if you had a enough of a thing for fries you'd, you'd go there i think of something i really like what what's one of your favorite foods ice cream okay but that's yeah of course that's just a milkshake yeah but that is a danger if i did that i feel like i'd be at risk of ice cream and wine and sangria right yeah what else i'm not a big soda drinker but i would probably if i had that thing done what were the ways i would cheat hopefully i'd be committed enough you know if i'm putting a lockjaw thing on myself hopefully i wouldn't be cheating but if we were to cheat what are some of the things you would cheat on definitely a milkshake cake i don't know yeah anything cake. I, I mean i think if i was gonna take the step of wiring my mouth shut i mean i might as well just lock myself in a room or put a bucket over my head like if, if you're gonna go to with that, that extreme right 
you know what I mean? Go to the next step. Yes. I'm just curious about what the things that I, what's his, what's that guy's name? The full figure? Nate, Nate Newton. I'm just curious what my Nate Newton week, what my weakness would be. Definitely milkshake. Right. Definitely sangria. Margaritas, maybe, but very slowly. The good thing about it is you got to be slow. What about like, I love pasta. I don't know if I'd sip on, if you could get it really small, how much are you allowed to open your mouth on this one? Like a half an inch, maybe. Oh, then I would just be sucking up down like little noodles and pesto linguine. Right. Yeah. Angel hair. You got to go with angel hair. Angel hair, but you'd probably be choking it up and throwing it up your nose and stuff. But I don't think I would like, I don't think I would blend angel hair and pesto, which I think is one of the best dishes or like pizza. I love pizza or sushi. I don't think I would blend it up. So I think I would, I would blend it up. Really? I would. Yeah. I would have like a pizza shake. That's so gross. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway. It's a great well, picture. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that the Washington Post did that. It's like, yeah, it's kind of a freaky looking picture. It, yeah. it, it looks like one of those 1895 yes, news stories. Yeah. And it, lo- it also looks like one of those things you wind up and it starts going off on its own. Every person with a bad sense of humor has at least six of those in their right. house. They're, they're, they're not they're, dying. You know, the the, the chattering teeth. It's just, it's the like, chi- yeah. yeah. There's some people, and look, I admit I'm one of them. You can't go into a Spencer gift store and not buy chattering oh, teeth that's funny that's your that's your nate newton yeah that's exactly. your week yeah yeah all right so what happened uh in isn't that so terrible? for isn't that terrible um we have a friend of the show uh mark zuckerberg who uh made a lot of uh, headlines by posting a video sharing a video of himself on a foil surfboard do you know what these things are no i don't okay well uh if we could just watch the video this is this is something mark uh Zuckerberg posted with Happy July 4th. <laughs> West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees. Look, he's trying to get the pose the right. Mountains yeah. Look at that. What is he doing? He looks like an eagle trying to take off unsuccessfully. You know what's great? What? I I guess my question is like, uh, how much money do you have to have before people stop telling you that things are a bad idea? Oh, that's a good question. Like, where are his no men? Like, he's surrounded by yes men. Yeah, I do want to know that. Like, what was the thought process, do you think, when he did that? I think he's trying to show his appreciation for America on the on July 4th and to show that he's in shape and to go viral. And it did, you know, and we're actually helping him do right. that, which I feel bad about. It's just fun. Look, got to give him credit. It's funny to have a... a, a supposedly important serious billionaire person doing something that's ridiculous right yeah so that's my question is like how many how many billions of or millions of dollars do you have to have before people start before right it's like yeah it's it's like when are you eccentric versus crazy it's a similar thing with that like i think if he had if he had just eight million dollars probably somebody would be well first of all no one would care who who's worse i mean bezos like would you rather he do this or which is better or which is worse um, Zucker on an electric surfboard or Bezos going to space? I think this is funny, personally. Right. Bezos going to space is like, I think all those guys are just, they're just in a giant measuring contest, you know? 
people might could actually die, you know, with this space race billionaire oh, right. space race. I thing. mean, you could kill someone with that too. With the surfboard. Yeah, you never know. Anyway, it's just totally bizarre. And then there, there's some, um, there's some response videos to this, which are pretty good. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. He's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, in spite of all the pounding and the hollering there. Coming what I was kind of hoping is that the, some like a, the animal would come out of the water and yeah, do that to looks, him. It would have been yeah. good shark again, anti shark aganda too. Wilson, I I did a little bit of a. I just literally went through his Instagram feed. <laughs> Send it. Okay, so what he's like just the biggest nerd uh, ever. Yeah. Um and he's playing it to the Mayor Pete song. Uh I just I'm I am i am almost impressed that he's showing this about himself because he's so nerdy. Okay, if we could just watch him and how incredibly awkward he is. Okay. Hey everyone. Uh it's it's good to see you. Uh, let's just go ahead and get uh, get Adam Masarian here. All Who right, is let's his press see. guy? Um, hold on. It's kind of encouraging. It's like like billionaires. They're just right. like us. Tech problems. We're getting really Adam in a second. Camera. It works. Delays. It works. There you are. I was worried if it didn't work, I was going to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's tough. It's tough when you're when you're running Instagram and if if if, if a live thing doesn't work. But no, we're we're uh, you know I mean I'm 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 excited about a lot of the stuff that we're building. Um, you know a lot of the stuff that we're doing in Instagram. I'm I'm excited to talk about that. How's the family? Family's good. Um, uh, the, I mean, look, the boys are nuts. We've got three of them, which is a lot. Matt, but, like uh, you, three uh, of them. But. Uh, I don't know. The little one's the easy one, which is surprising. Are the girls? They're good. They're good. We got to get the kids together again sometime. I know. Our um, especially Augie, my weird. uh, my youngest, really, really has a thing for um, you know, she, I think she she and the Masseri boy clan um get together get, get along okay. pretty well. It's pretty fun to All right. to see them together. Yeah. Well, I think I think the Masseri boys have a thing for Augie. She's she they, like they don't listen to anything I say ever. And when we hang out with Augie, Augie just directs them like she's like the conductor of the entire. He's looking off know, to the side to make sure the person he kidnapped <laughs> in this game. I know, yeah. Or Augie yeah. isn't there. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, she she's got a charisma. I'm not sure where she got that. Yeah, from. this guy's. Um, <laughs> it's not, yeah. not 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 me. Um, but he monopolized basically all human communication, almost single-handedly 
suffocated the First Amendment. Well, I think it's, it's, I mean, it's so funny that he'd created Facebook because he had like resentments about girls and everything. Yeah. And the rest of the world has to suffer. But that's probably the plot of about 90% of world disasters. Dudes who are frustrated. Yeah. Didn't get enough. Like positive you know, reinforcement. We'll po- say. Positive reinforcement. Let's yeah. Put it that way. I don't know. The, the, the flag thing, the, the surfing on 4th of July thing, it's silly, but I think, I think I'm, I'm for silly when it comes You're to silly, you don't, I mean, okay, you know more than anyone else though why Facebook is terrible. So can you just fill it in? It's like the real reason one of a hand, handful of companies that, that controls basically the vast majority of all news distribution. So if they decide, which they have been, to, to crack down on certain kinds of expression, then they can kind of single-handedly affect how whole populations um, consume news. So you, you see, you see the relationship, the, the worst, biggest downside possible in situations like Israel, where they just regularly zap thousands of accounts created by Palestinian people, mainly because one of the reasons that Facebook is so effective as a means of communication that people use it basically as their only way of, of communicating with each other. Like it's in a lot of places, it's like replaced the telephone, newspapers, everything. So it, it's become this choke point for um, for speech. And in addition, in addition to the fact that they make more money than you could make if you like filled the whole warehouse full of $100 bill printing machines, like they've, they've so completely perfected the, the science of um, collecting information about your surfing habits. Growing like a breeze. And matching that to advertising that they've, you know, they've, they've just made you know, they've cre- they've created a basically unstoppable force, right? When it comes to making money on that scale, but right. the really scary thing is the speech thing because they they uh, for a long time he he had this posture that he didn't want to get involved with moderating content, and after 2016 he went kind of sharply in the other direction, and now you know he's one of three or four companies that has that basically makes decisions about what what people get to see about things, you know, whether it's COVID information or, you know, election information, things like the Hunter Biden laptop story, which I know a lot of people don't think is important, right. but it, it, it's the idea that they're, that they're picking sides on political disputes now is kind yeah. of scary. Also, I mean, we've said this before, right? But like, if Mark Zuckerberg is this guy who is responsible for Trump, why and has the bad the poor judgment right to like allow the russians to do abc xyz whatever like the narrative is like why do you want him in charge of content moderation like i thought he was a bad guy and craven i mean i think he is those things but but not because of uh i i don't really think the russia thing is is an example of that um but it's just like pick a narrative right yeah unless unless it's like now you've scared him into being a good person and we talked about this with Matt Stiller because yeah. the, the the issue is if you if you really believe people like Zuckerberg are dangerous, then you want to use antitrust laws to break up companies like this because the the, the right. root problem is they just have too they have too big of a share of things like media advertising and media distribution and all that stuff. They're just the company's too big. But rather than make the company smaller and, and enforce antitrust position uh, provisions. What all these critics of Facebook have decided to do is sort of leave them in place and basically just ask them to just, you know, crack down on a different group of people. 
in, in other words, rather than using Facebook as the Trump campaign did in, in 2016, they were really, really effective with Facebook ads. It's one of the reasons they won. You know, allegedly, right? There were there was the Russian influence on so, but rather than than just split up Facebook right. so that it doesn't right. it couldn't conceivably do that much damage, um, what they did is instead is drag them into Washington and say, like, we want you to now get involved with being the editor in chief of the universe, which he's totally unqualified to do. And he and we want to give a shout out and wish well to um, Mark Zuckerberg and all the other tech bosses who um, are at summer camp for billionaires right now. They're in rural Idaho. I guess they do this um, retreat there. Uh, it's called the uh, Sun Valley Conference. Mm. And Apple's Tim Cook, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Netflix, Reed Hastings, and Ted Sarandos, plus Airbnb's Brian Chesky. They're all hanging out. That sounds it's fantastic. It's organized by, I know, the investment firm Allen & Company. Um, do you know about this? No. Brings together people from tech, media, design, and sports, and it's been taking place every year since July 1983, except for 2020 because of the COVID pandemic. What do you think it would be like hanging out with all these people? Do you think they're all as awkward as he is? It could be anything from deadly boring to like human sacrifice and orgies. Right. We wouldn't know the difference. Yeah. All right. So that was uh, the four food groups. So we're so excited to have on the show Adolf Reed, who is a political scientist. He's a professor emeritus at uh, Penn. He's written several books, including The South, Jim Crow, and Its Afterlives, which is not published yet. That is a preview. We're just announcing it. That is not yet in existence. This is a pattern. We did this with Norm Finkelstein. We tell you about books coming out that aren't out yet. But he's We've already, read them. You don't get to, or we, yeah, we know you, about yeah. them. We know, well, we know about them. We, we read them. In the case of Finkelstein's, we're going to get uh, reads and rub it in your faces. And then hopefully you'll rub it in your literal faces when you buy it. He's he's the author of books, including Crashing the Party from the Bernie Sanders campaign to a progressive movement, renewing black intellectual history, the ideological and material foundations of African-American thought without justice for all the new liberalism and our retreat from racial equality. Uh, he's very prolific. He runs nonsite.org, which is a great um, website and he uh and he got he got into a kerfuffle recently which is one of the reasons why we wanted to have him talk about uh the subject of this new book by robin with Piaget. whom did he get into a kerfuffle the, the, the democratic socialists oh a while ago yeah yeah he was almost yeah. yeah he was uninvited because he's a class reductionist and uh i just allegedly and i just want to say something before we launch and and a, and a critic of race reductionism which is essentially what yes. this book is about the, right, the yeah. robin d'angelo book is about, yeah so and I just want to say, like, you know, it's not just and I, I don't want to sound corny, especially because we're talking about Robin D'Angelo, who is so cringe. But like, it's not just that people like D'Angelo de-emphasize class. It's that she actually puts forward programs or, and, and trainings that stand in the way of class programs that actually disproportionately benefit black people and people of color. So it's not just a question. I think lots of times people think like, oh, we care about universal rights. We want everyone to have health care. Like we do. We do want everyone to have health care. But if you care about people of color and you care about racism, it's not sufficient, but it's necessary to adopt universal programs. I think it's worse than that, actually. I think I think her her whole ideology is about heightening the importance of racial identity 
So even though she can't, she's superficially campaigning against racism, what she's arguing for is this idea of, that everybody should be more racially conscious all the time, uh, which I, I, as I've made this argument before, it's essentially the same argument as people like Richard Spencer and David Duke and people like that. And yeah. it's one of the reasons why um, her passages in her books are often sound strikingly like um, what those people say. Uh, so it'll be interesting to talk to to Professor Reed about this because yeah. he has um, he's, he has a lot of ideas on the subject and he's been very vociferous about about a lot of these yeah. these issues. So all right, so without further ado, let's talk to Professor Adolf Reed. Yeah. Before we jump into it, I, I, can I just ask you a question, which is probably overwhelming, and you can also pass on it, and we can get back into right into the uh, yeah. D'Angelo thing. But what is the? How do you define racism? Oh, yeah, that's a question. Um, well, I think it's fundamentally an ideology, um, right? Um, I mean, if you want to be literal about it, and you know, as an historian of ideologies, that's kind of what my shtick is. It's like an attitude or it's a set of attitudes. I sometimes go back and forth on this, right? So the real thing to me, right, is that hierarchical societies, right, of probably any sort, but the ones that we know uh, most um, intimately are capitalist ones or feudalist ones, whatever. But uh, hierarchical societies don't depend just on force uh, and coercion to stabilize the dominance of the ruling class. They depend on ideologies. And one of the key kinds of ideologies that they depend on is uh, what, what my friend and colleague at two different places, um, Roger Smith, initially referred to as uh, ideologies of ascriptive difference. That is difference based on what you supposedly are instead of what you do. And what those ideologies do is provide a natural seeming justification for why everybody is where, where they are at the moment in the society. So I tend to think of the genus, right, if I can get Darwinian for a second, as um, the ideologies of ascriptive difference. And race as a species, um, along with other species that are part of that or that constitute that, that genus, gender, sexual orientation, natural origin, right, uh, by country or whatever, and they vary uh, uh, over time as they would, as they would have to, right, uh, to serve the needs of the moment, or really to, to be less functionalist about it, to create the common sense understanding of the moment, right? And what that means among other things is that they work best when they are assumed to come out of nature, so people don't have to think about them or to justify them, right? Well, he's a slave, he's black. Yeah, well, that makes sense then, because blacks are supposed to be slaves after a certain point, right? Not, not for time immemorial, as the Afro pessimists or uh, or uh, Nicole Hannah Jones would argue, right? Uh, so, so all these notions exist within history. All these ideologies exist within history. One of the interesting things I think that we've experienced over the last half century or so, and there are reasons for this too, we can get into that racism as a category has expanded, right? The currency of what counts as racism has inflated like the Deutschmark in the late 1920s, right? Um, so, so like anything can be racist uh, and racism becomes 
the sole um, explanation or sole explanatory category for making sense of any kind of inequality or or seemingly inappropriate uh, or unjustifiable inequality that involves black people or other non-whites, non, non like in any way. So for instance, like a grad student advisor of mine who actually you and I have a, have a shared link to, and I hope she doesn't you know, start getting embarrassed about my doing this, but in, in, in her first year in the PhD program, she was in um, my grad seminar in, on black American political thought. And she was leading discussions around a, a massive readings uh, between the mid 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 thirties and the end of the forties, and it was all kind of new stuff to her. But her first comment was that she was surprised, genuinely, to see that nobody that she read uh, talked about struggling against racism. Right? That I mean, everybody talked about much more concrete stuff programs that they were for, programs that they were against, policies they were for, policies they were against. And I said, yeah, well, that didn't happen until after the victories of the social movement of the 60s. So then, and, and I mean, Lord knows, this is what post-war racial liberalism in the US is all about. So you, you struggle against racism, which is like part of the struggle against prejudice, part of the struggle against in, intolerance, bigotry, and so forth and so on. What recedes from, from view is like, um, essential problems of economic inequality, like like employment inequality, housing inequality, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but I mean, like I said, that's that's possibly why why that's happened is possibly another conversation. Uh, but anyway, so once again, Katie, you've asked me what time it is, and I've given you a disquisition on how to make a watch. Well, I mean, I asked you a very, I asked you what time is. I think would be the uh, <laughs> analogy. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, I appreciate it. <laughs> yes, thank you. Really appreciate your answer. Well, in the, in the framework of all of this, where does so obviously we just had Robin D'Angelo just had her new book come out, Nice Racism. Right. In the in the framework of that kind of progression of how we understand what social change is all about, like once upon a time it was about concrete policy changes, structural changes, and then it evolved after the 60s movements. Where, where, right. where does, A, is this thing that D'Angelo is expressing, is it wholly new? And where does it fit in to what you're talking about, right. her, her point of view? Yeah, well, it's not wholly new. Like I said, I mean, this is what my son brought, brought, brought home before the 70s were over, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so, so the stuff has been, been out there. Um, but I do want to say one thing in uh, D'Angelo's favor, which is that, uh, and this is in, uh, in response to the uh, appropriation thing. Technically, um, she wouldn't really have been white before 1924 anyway, or at least not before the New Deal. So, she, so um, she's got some claim. But anyway, no, it's not new. Uh, I mean, I think combating racism becomes a convenient alternative to attacking um, inequality. And and uh, I mean inequality, even like uh, 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 even those inequalities that appear or that manifest themselves as racial disparities, right? The struggle against racism is exactly parallel to the struggle against terrorism, right? It it can go on forever because the enemy is an abstraction that you can define however you want to define it at the moment that you want to define it. Part of D'Angelo's thing, and she's not the first person to do this. I mean. There's this woman named Peggy McIntosh who yeah. 
going back to the 70s had like the knapsack of privilege or some kind of shit like that. And, and I know people, um, and there's something interesting here too, but I, uh, I mean, I know people who have had careers at racial sensitivity trainings. And the people that I know, like in my world, the people who came out of the movement actually, came out of anti-Klan politics or like other kind of left politics in the 70s, and they started doing this stuff. It makes sense, like in the same way that, you know, people who were graduate students in the late 60s and early 70s who were left theory in, inclined people, you know, got into the Frankfurt School or Althusser and, 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 and that became the cornerstone of their academic careers. Well, that's what's happened in the, in the, in the anti-racism or the racial sensitivity training world. And one of the things that's happened over time is that the material incentives, and it's funny, pardon this aside, but it's funny, like how many political economy oriented leftists we encounter who apply critical political economic thinking to every domain in the world outside the movement that they're operating in. <laughs> uh, but so the material incentives um, evolved and changed over time. And like some of my friends who, who have done this work have said to me that they used to do it for community groups, used to do it for unions and so forth and so on. Then as the material incentives change, they, they wound up doing it more for corporations or for local governments who are under consent decrees. So this becomes part of the thing, right? Like you're under a consent decree for uh, actual discrimination. One of, the, uh, and one of the remedies that's likely to be imposed as part of the dissent decree is that you submit to this kind of training. And, and we see it all the time now too, right? Like even the insurgencies within um, NGOs, right? Where staff or whatever start going batshit crazy about how, how the leadership of the organization is all racist, sexist, whatever, 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 right? Uh, and one of the first calls is to bring in some you know, minor league version of Robin DiAngelo to do the racial sensitivity training. So, so in that sense, it's taken hold as part of what I've often described as the broader political economy of race relations. Okay, so I think that's kind of part, partly the way we need to understand this. Since all of it, right, is, again, I'm trying to find a not too functionalist seeming way to put this, but I'll, maybe I'll just live with it for now. Uh, but since all, all of this complex, right, uh, both the discursive and the institutional have emerged around um, a systemic disposition to find ways to evade talking about class and economic inequality, uh, then it just grows in that, you know, sort of dark um, in, environment with other fungi and so forth and so on. It could be a good jumping off point to, to watch a clip of a, an interview that she did on MSNBC. It's, there's going to be a lot of, I think, food for thought and it and uh, it features our good, good friend uh, Al Sharpton. Ah, okay. Uh, well, wait, um, I need to check my credit cards because you could <laughs> probably find a way to get to them through <laughs> through, through the video yeah. clip. <laughs> this it, either or, right? You're either racist or you're not right. racist. And in a moment such as we have now, both 
forces, if you will, both sides are amplified. And so it's very easy for those of us who are deeply committed to racial justice to see ourselves as on the not racist side. And we can point to the really explicit, clear, extreme examples, uh, but it's much harder to get your hands on the more implicit, the well-intended, unaware, but still, um, you know, mm -hmm. impactful ways that folks like me, well-meaning, well-intended uh, folks, uh, collude with the system. Uh, it is not an aberration. Racism is not an aberration. It is the norm. And so if we are passive mm -hmm. within that norm, if we see ourselves as not part of the problem, we will inadvertently uh, contribute to it by our passivity. So outwoking is, is this what I call a move uh, to always position oneself as more aware, more advanced than other people. It's, it's the pointing the finger outward rather than inward. Dr. D'Angelo, one of the things that uh, appealed to me about your, your new book is talking about trying to outwoke uh, uh, others. And, and I see that all the time in a lot of movement, engagement that I'm involved in where people tend to, to trivialize legitimate struggle of blacks and, and gays and, and uh, Latino X and all, Latinx or whoever by uh, dealing with what is trendy that makes them look woke rather than dealing with the real problem. How do you deal with this in the book and, and, and what made you go there, if I could put it that way? Certainly, and it is an honor to be speaking with you, Reverend Sharpton. Honor's Thank you. Mine. <laughs> um, so out. That's a, that's a sinister little laugh that there. Yeah. Move where <laughs> you position yourself above other people as more advanced. And it is a very superficial response. Uh, you know, uh, last summer you saw uh, much more involvement from what we might call the average white person. You saw protests, you saw activism. But in some ways it's somewhat exciting and interesting to go down to a protest. The daily, day in and day out struggle, the courage that it takes to, to get racism on the table and keep it on the table, the humility that is required for white people people. Uh, that is much harder. And we see that fade out. Uh, we don't always see uh, the excitement sustained when it comes down to the really difficult work. And the concept of white fragility resonated so deeply with so many people worldwide uh, that I wanted to keep going with that, to go deeper and help unpack. So what does this look like in our daily Translation, lives? Translation, she wanted to sell another you know, I make a provocative right. claim in white fragility right. that white progressives, uh, those of us who see ourselves on that progressive side of that equation, actually cause the most daily harm. That's a line in her book that I... I I missed originally, and then I went back. She says this, I believe that white progressives cause the most daily damage to people of color. And I tripped over that at first, but I, then I wondered, I mean, cl clearly the book is aimed at that audience. Right. So is, is, is that is that just about trying to trying to play on the emotions of those readers? Or does she really believe that? Or like, what, what is she trying to say with that line, do you think? Well, you know, uh, I, I might have said this on a podcast to you guys before, and if I did, I apologize, but it's worth saying again anyway. My father used to describe ideology as, in one sense, being the mechanism that harmonizes the principles that you want to believe you hold with what advances your material interests. Right? <laughs> so 
in that sense, like the question kind of misses, uh, what your question kind of misses the point. Uh, so, so, so when I heard her then, like what I imagined was like JK Rowling, is that her name? Um, yeah. um, explaining how she felt after the first um, Harry Potter book was a success. And it's like, yeah, I mean, like you said, Matt, so like I'm onto something, I made a lot of money here and yeah. I think I can keep this thing going for about 12 other iterations. Right. But the other thing I thought was just in listening to her, I mean, image that came to my mind was Viola Liotto, right? Uh, the, the postal worker or wife of a postal worker who, who from uh, Detroit, who went down to Selma in 1965 to participate in the voting rights march and to participate like an organizer in the voting rights march. And she was killed, right, yeah. by the Klan. Uh, and I thought, oh, so that's what she was doing down there, really. She was just trying to out, out woke the black people. I mean, I, I mean, I don't even know what to say to shit like that. I really don't. I mean, it's just pretty repugnant. Yeah, I mean, the the I mean, to the question of of there, they do the most racial harm of all. Like she provides no proof of that at all. No, no. And I think obviously there's self interest there, but I think she's maybe like to be to be charitable, though she doesn't really deserve it because she's totally disingenuous, I would say. But let's let's read her as not, like let's read her as, right. as naive. I think maybe she's confusing how ironic it is with it being the most of something. So mm -hmm. it's maybe more ironic right. when yeah. progressives engage in racist behavior or have racist ideas and it may stand out more. I mean, I think that's like the the, the only thing that she remotely proves, but yeah. I think she's I think she's trying to say that by covering up by by giving sort of latent racism the veneer of respectability yeah. that it causes more damage than right. the open version so she's right. she's essentially I mean her whole book is arguing against this idea of of suppressing the the hidden ugliness uh and she's just, I think what she's saying is that the people who are sort of hiding it effectively are more dangerous than the people who yeah. uh, who aren't but yeah. i don't know that that's true i mean it's yeah. it, it feels more like something you 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 might convince yourself if you lived in right. the suburbs but i i don't i don't know it it also kind of reminds me of people i don't hear much of this anymore but you still hear hear some here and there who would say well i prefer the the upfront out and open racism of the jim crow south to the genteel um, submerged um, on racism of the suburban North. Well, well, well. in the first place, it was overdrawn, right? Uh, as my forthcoming book will, will um, illuminate. Oh, you but, gotta plug uh, it. What's it, what, what's it called? Uh, well, I think Verso is calling it now, uh, The South with the subtitle, um, Jim Crow and its Afterlives. And it should be out around the end of the year. Uh, it's a it's a non-memoir or an anti-memoir. Uh, but anyway, um, but as someone who has um, experienced ample quantities of both, uh, the view that the out front uh, is better to deal with or one would prefer to deal with it, just strikes me as a view that can be held only by people who haven't, who haven't ever had to deal with the out front on a regular basis, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and again, like I'll go, I mean, to Lyndon Johnson on this, right? Like the point, as, as he pointed out, that the point of the Civil Rights Bill of 1964 was not to change people's attitudes, it was to change their public behavior.
and you got a right to have whatever fucked up attitude you you have. You know, I mean, you guys, for instance, I'm not trying to flatter you just because I'm on, but I mean, you guys and other people who operate in this domain uh, are going to be more instrumental in helping to change the terms of political debate. And that's one of the reasons we, we've decided to do a podcast on our own, as you know, Katie. Uh, to, um, and around that very theme, what what would the country look like if we're governed by buying in the interest of the working class? Right. Yeah, this is a, a useful idiots exclusive breaking news, I think, right? Have you announced this oh, yeah, elsewhere? No. Nope, haven't. That's right. So Adolf Reed and others are launching a podcast, uh, tentatively or perhaps permanently called Class Matters. Right, correct. And we're hoping to get together for the launch around um, you know, Labor Day weekend. Perfect. Wow, fantastic. So, yeah, but this is the breaking news. Now you got yeah. it first. Yeah, we got to get the Chiron. Exactly, That's yeah. breaking, yeah. breaking <laughs> news <laughs> across the bottom. Yeah. Little, little crawl action. <laughs> so that was great. That was so great. He's great. Very funny. Yeah, very great funny. sense of humor. Great, great turn of, of phrase. Yeah. And, and that, you know, look, I, that whole thing about how essentially this this is the same ideology as the kind of defeated Confederate intellectuals. I mean, I, I think that's right on the money. It's controversial. It'll it'll probably get him in some hot water for for saying that. If uh, but it's there's a lot to that. I think you know you see essentially this 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 kind of stuff is designed to defuse any arguments that are made like from the direction of political political economy right yeah and and, uh, and and another thing i wanted to say quickly on a related note uh there's a lot of people of color there are a lot of people of color who can't stand robin d'angelo i've been getting some pushback about this how it's problematic to criticize her you can find yourself in many positions on the spectrum politically uh, and and have real uh, disdain for for D'Angelo anywhere from being more of a liberal progressive who who has a problem with the way she commodifies uh, weaponizes benefits from the labor of uh, people of color uh, to being more of an unrepentant leftist like myself who doesn't appreciate how she undermines class mobilizing. So uh, I just wanted to put that out there because I feel like people have been doing some kind of like um, what's the word. Um, monolithizing, it's not a word, but turning all people of color, much like Rob and D'Angelo does into this magical uh, monolith that has one opinion. Yeah, she's become like an icon of something, but... Does this new intensified or resurgent form of racism that we see with Trump, does that require um, encountering, does that requ require confronting racism in a new way? I actually think kind of like what, what I mean, not surprisingly, I agree with Adolf, and, I think it's the opposite. It's like, given that people have are having their ethnic identity, their whiteness appealed to, pitched to, like you you have to say, no, you're being played. Like all of that is to screw you over, divide and conquer. And you know, I don't think it will work to to tell like, you know, the the person who's and even if you hate these people, again, you can think they're they're trap you can have whatever classist attitudes you want. I mean, I won't I, I will have a problem with that, but you're, it's a free country. Like just don't you get on a strategic level and a tactical level how telling people who feel like they're losing their advantage, like that they need to check their privilege, that's not going to work. Yeah, I mean, if you frame for for people as a as a choice between white pride and white guilt, 
they're gonna yeah. they're gonna choose like uh, try yeah. which you're not yeah. gonna like the answer there you know like, right that's which is and crazy that, which doesn't mean that you're throwing that does not require or go hand in hand with throwing people of color under the bus in fact you can't go around saying that the world is that all white people are are racist and then say we want to empower people of color white people need to empower people of color by pitching them anti-racism in the most unappealing way right that just yeah. is, you, which is your priority like shaming people or actually fighting for things that like making allies out of out of people and and fighting for programs that actually disproportionately help people who you care to who you claim to care about or champion or represent yeah so, yeah I no mean, it, it doesn't make any sense if you think about it rationally but they right. they do it anyway yeah the other thing is you talk about how there are people of color who find her problematic yeah like kind of not surprising i mean i have to say I mean, you and I both grew up in kind of, uh, you know, sort of privileged upper class, yeah. you know, backgrounds. I can't say that I have a ton of experience of being around people who are overtly racist, but they're, you definitely every now and then will meet a person who's got like an unhealthy intensity about the subject and it like sets off your spider sense. And, you know, you just kind of know to back up, back away from that person. And she, she gives me that. Mm, vibe right i mean that don't don't you get that like that me? she does some weird stuff like behind closed doors no that she's just that there's something about this person who's just like way too into the subject like really really unhealthily interested in things like stereotypes about oh i see hey, you, you know what i'm yeah. saying like yes. you know they right. might they might couch it as intellectual curiosity or something like that but there's something like weird there yeah and like and there's this there's a scene in the book where she says one of the most important ways that i have worked to challenge my racial socialization has to been has been to build authentic cross-racial relationships yet i still perpetrate harm and occasion in those relationships as a result of the unavoidable unavoidable reality that i was raised in a white supremacist culture like First of all, what must those friendships be oh like? God, can you so draining? Can you can you imagine? What I would they just must, if I were on so the other fraught, end of that, I would just know? put my phone down and like mop the floor. Right, right. I'm sure she, she doesn't require any yeah any intervention. Yeah, just even imagining what what those interactions must be like it like it, it just makes you want to curl up in a ball and yeah, it's just total cringe. But uh, do you want to can you you wrote a good piece on your Substack? Can you just give a quick summary of the of the of the dinner that inspired? Uh, oh, yeah. So she, piece? yeah. she she opens her book. This is an amazing so thing. Amazing. She, she opens the book, giving this description. I might as well just read from her yeah. for her thing, because it's so so funny. She tells a story at the beginning of the book where she um, and this is the first first two paragraphs she is in college she goes out to dinner with a friend her, no with her, her then girlfriend her, her then girlfriend which is relevant her um, romantic partner goes into the restaurant and is shocked to find out that the other couple is black and she writes i was excited and felt an immediate need to let them know i was not racist I proceeded to spend the evening telling them how racist my family was. I shared every racist joke, story, and comment I could remember my family ever making. Uh, and then, and she says, "I." She she realizes that this made the the couple uncomfortable, but she goes on. I obliviously plowed ahead, ignoring their signals. I was having a great time regaling them with these anecdotes, the proverbial life of the party. 
my progressive credentials were impeccable. I was a minority myself, a woman in a, a committed relationship with another woman. I knew how to talk about patriarchy and heterosexism. I was a cool white progressive, not an ignorant racist. Of course, what I was actually demonstrating was how completely oblivious I was. And yes, I shared these in full, uncensored. Can you believe they said that, I would ask? So can you imagine sitting at this dinner, having a woman being like, and then the black guy walks into a restaurant and says, but up, but up, like just reciting racist jokes and then saying, can you believe that? I know. And it, when she, it's like an SNL and, sketch. And she's, and she's talking about how she's having fun regaling him with these stories, which is like, sorry, it, even that it's just so fucked up. Yeah. Right? Who does that? You know, like in yeah. the, in, 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 even if, even if you I don't know, thought you were trying to make a connection by right. you, you yes. would maybe couch it as, and I felt so bad, you know, right. because it, like you wouldn't be like, and then they said, yeah, that is know? the weirdest thing. Like, right? like I get the, even that, you know, that other racism she perpetuated, which I do think is a little like where she makes a joke about someone responding to a black woman's braids. And then she had to repair that like that. I would never do that but I get where it comes from. It's like, actually what she calls it is credentializing, which I get it. You're trying to show that you're down, but this is the opposite of that or woke or whatever. This is the opposite. It's like, let me tell you about how racist my parents are by sharing some great jokes. We used to, they used to tell around that house. Can you believe it? Right. Yeah. And let me, let me, let me scan your faces while I tell you to, uh, these stories about their, their offensive comments or, or whatever. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. just, just creepy. I don't, I don't think can you imagine that dinner like yeah, yeah what what kind of nar I mean I do really think she she's a narcissist because she gets so angry at people who don't like her oh, tunings yeah. and, it, right. and she talks about how they they need humility it's like okay lady you keep talking about this person not liking your thing that person walking out maybe you're showing instead of telling because there's a real gaping there's like a humility void in this white person this white person being from angelo oh i know i mean the, the the book is full of like unintentional comedy because she, she she'll go off in this, these stories about how so-and-so doesn't want to listen to her teaching and then she'll proceed to retell the story and explain the 19 different ways that they are wrong yeah. and then the punchline of that will be and they still didn't listen you know and then there, there will be like a headline right. that Despite. says why, why can't bob and sue hear me right and right. and it's totally excluded that they just think you're insane right uh, and the only possible explanation can be that they're 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 in denial about their their racism yeah and it's major gaslighting also, because it's saying like, if you, there are two choices, right? And actually this comes from an article in the Washington Post, Carlos Sosado said this, I'm paraphrasing, but basically you have two choices. One is that you acknowledge that Robin D'Angelo is right and you are indeed a racist, or you say you're not and you are indeed fulfilling her prophecy or for showing her to be right because you are white frag you have white fragility which is what stops you from acknowledging what she's saying right it's a it's the ordeal by water or yeah. kafka trap whatever you exactly, want to call yeah. it right you, you can't there's it's a no it's a no-win situation which is it, it's on the one on one level it's brilliant i mean i, I think it's i think she's it, it's it's a crude uh money-making scheme but it's very very effective you know and it, i i think one of the things that's hilarious about this book is that just that whole thing about how if you 
if you don't agree with me, you're a racist. That's so powerful that you don't even have to like write a good book. You can write a completely shitty right. book and people will still buy it. And then write it again. <laughs> and write it again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's 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 kind of amazing. But it really is amazing. Yeah, no, it's 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 incredible. Anyway, great to talk to Professor Reed again. Yeah. And sorry we didn't get to talk more basketball with him, but I know. Um, uh, you're sorry. I mean, I can't even tell you about wow yeah, how, yeah. I, how many questions I had him. But, about Yanis. Make sure that you subscribe to us on Substack. That is usefulidiots.substack.com. Also subscribe to us on YouTube. That is youtube.com slash usefulidiots. Rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe wherever you find your podcast. So that's iTunes, that's Stitcher. Um, what's the one that I never Spotify? Yeah, just look around town and you'll find it there. You're definitely going to want to become Substack supporters uh, because if you do that, you will get to hear some really hot takes from Adolf Reed spicy hot takes that you can only hear and see at usefulidiots.substack.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod. That's usefulidiot. So just, just singular, usefulidiotpod. And make sure you check us out on Substack and on Twitter. Um, we will be doing, releasing another, yet another uh, crossword. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.